First Peter chapter two is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and our text is the first three verses there in First Peter chapter two. I'll go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll dig in together. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse one, the text reads as follows: It says, "So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander." Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the last couple of weeks what we've been looking at in 1 Peter is this idea of the new birth. We saw it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, or chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. And this whole text from first chapter 1, verse 22 down to chapter 2, verse 3, it's almost like a big sandwich, okay, with a lot of meat in the middle. And we took a look at the meat first in the middle a couple of weeks ago, and we saw that the new birth is the essence of salvation, that we come to life from the dead, and that God does that through the imperishable seed of his word as he plants it within us, and it begins to grow. And so we saw that the essence of salvation is not just being forgiven by God and then trying to pattern our life after Jesus. So we get a general pardon from God where we're forgiven for all of our past sins, and now we try and live as best we can and pattern our life after the life of Christ. We saw how, how really ridiculous that is because we've never really, if you ever really considered his life, look how he lived. You can't live that way. You know that somewhere deep down inside. So it's not just a general pardon and now pattering your life after him, but it's the coming, it's the coming to life from the dead as God does something inside that begins to then express itself outside internally that begins to work itself out externally. And there's a couple of markers that we said are help identify whether or not this has happened on the inside. And the first one we saw last week in verse 22 of chapter 1, where Peter says, listen, if you have come to life from the dead, then love, then love, then love one another, love the church well, even though it costs you something, even though it requires sacrifice, even though it's going to stretch you and challenge you, you should love. See, one of the markers of recognizing whether or not you've come to life from the dead is this new affection that you now have for God's people in the church. But another one that we want to dig into this morning is not only do you have a new affection for the church, but Peter says you also have a new appetite for the Bible, a new appetite for the Word of God. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So we said a couple of weeks ago that whenever you're born again, you begin to move away from things you used to move towards, and you begin to move towards things you used to move away from. Those things you used to avoid, you now seek. The things you used to seek, you now avoid. And that's not just coming from externally trying to conform yourself to this new pattern of rules, but it comes internally as God works to bring change from the inside out. And that change from the inside out moves you toward God's people with this new affection and love for the church. And it moves you toward his word with this new appetite for scripture. And that's what we want to see this morning. This new appetite for scripture in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. So right out of the gate, notice what Peter says about this appetite. He says it's got to be there. (laughs) He says it must be there. He commands us, in essence, when he says, long for the pure spiritual milk. That's a command that he gives. It's not a suggestion. So he says his appetite has to be there if you have been born of God. In essence, Peter, right out of the gate, says you got to be hungry. You want to know whether or not you've really passed from death to life? Look at your appetite. 
Look at whether or not you're hungry for what God has to say in his word. Now, Peter likens it here to, what does he say? Pure spiritual milk. Pure spiritual milk in, in, in uh, verse uh, 2. That's what he calls it. But if you go back up into verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1, what you're going to see is Peter talks about the word of God back there as something that has brought us from death to life that endures forever. It's the imperishable seed that God plants within us. It's his word that causes us to come to life. And Peter says, listen, if that's what is growing inside of you, if that's what's growing, if the word's been planted inside of you, then naturally you're going to hunger for it. You're going to long for it. There's going to be an appetite for it. You're going to be hungry for the Bible. And when you look at the, what, how Peter describes it in verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, many of us go, well, well, isn't Peter just talking about the basic elementary truths of the Bible when he talks about milk? Right? Isn't that what we might think of when an infant who grows up on milk, they, they're not yet ready for solid food? And Paul talks that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verses 1 and 2, he says this, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. And so lots of us look at what Peter has to say in chapter 2, verse 2, and we go, well, Peter's just talking about what it, what it looks like in your, in your infancy as a Christian, that you have this hunger like you do for pure spirit, like you do for milk as a, as a, as a baby. But I want you to consider something, that Peter is not using the same kind of comparative language that Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Peter's talking in 1 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about the fullness of God's revelation in the scripture. He's not talking about milk versus meat. He's talking about something that nourishes everyone who has passed from death to life, everyone who's been born a second time, everyone who's come to life from the dead. The fullness of God's self-revelation in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, not just the basic elementary doctrines, but putting your face in this book day after day after day after day, because there's a hunger that's growing inside of you. And what does Peter say that looks like? Well, he describes it, he likens it to an infant, doesn't he? In the same way that an infant longs for the mother's milk. Now, how's an infant long for its mom's milk? Hmm? Those of you who got babies? About every three or four hours, right? About every three or four hours, no matter what time of the day that it is, okay? And so I can remember when we brought our firstborn home from the hospital, and I can remember um, you know, trying to be the, the good husband and the good father and waking up every three or four hours and going to get the baby and taking it to the changing table and changing the diaper, getting it all nice and, and dry and clean, and then bringing it into my wife and say. Feed him, right? Because I got nothing for him. I just wasn't wired that way, okay? But I remember every three or four hours, the baby's waking up crying because it's hungry. It has an appetite, and it needs its belly to be filled. In fact, I can remember holding our child on certain occasions, uh, Caleb, who's eight now, and Sarah, who's now four. I remember holding both of our kids, and I can remember as I held them, as it came about that time for them to be hungry and ready to eat, I can remember them turning their head toward my arm or toward my chest and kind of open their mouth and going, huh? like they're looking for something, right? And I'm, I'm looking at them going, man, I, that's cute and all, but I, I don't have anything for you, Right? Because every three to four, there's this regularity with which they long. 
There's an appetite that they have when their stomach starts to growl and they turn their head and they say, feed me. I'm hungry. I need food. And Peter says it should be the same way for those who have been born a second time when it comes to the word of God. That there's one of the ways you know whether or not it's happened to you is, is if there's a hunger for Scripture that you never knew before. Before, perhaps the Bible was something that was bitter to you. So when you read it, right, you saw all the things now that you've got to go and do. But once you've been crossed over, once you've crossed over from death to life and been born a second time, been born again, all of a sudden the Bible moves from being bitter now to being sweet and it begins to nourish you in ways that you never understood before. See, the first thing Peter says out of the gate, he says, you've got to be hungry. If you're born of God, there will be an appetite for his word. But notice what else he says. What, what does it produce? What does it do? Right? Because it's not just this inactive, inactive words on a page. He says it actually does something. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says that it's the primary means by which God uses to grow us up. What does he say? Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it. By what? The pure spiritual milk. What's the pure spiritual milk? The word of God. That by it you may grow up into salvation. You may grow up towards the full stature of the image of Christ in your life. That's what Peter says. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever seen a middle school student. We've got a few in the room this morning, right? Uh, maybe a sixth grader, uh, sixth grade guy who wears like a size 11 shoe, right? But, but he's like four foot two. <laughs> he's kind of gangly. His arms are long and his fingers are long. His hands are big. His feet are big. And he's just kind of a gangly, clumsy, kind of stumbling all over himself. You ever seen people, kids like that? Maybe some of you were a child like that. Maybe there was this, you know, you, you had big feet, big hands, long arms, and you were just kind of gangly and clumsy until you hit a growth spurt and you began to grow in. What did you do? You grew into your body. You matured into your body. Right? Physically, we're, we, we, we're, we're familiar with what that, how that happens and what that looks like. Right? You get this gangly kid who's like 4'2 with a size 11 shoe, and all of a sudden, you know, he's a senior in high school or freshman in college, and he's dunking all over everyone. Why? Because he grew into his body. And what Peter envisions here is he says, there's got to be a hunger for the word because it's by the very word of God. It's by the pure spiritual milk of the word that you're craving now, longing for. You have an appetite for when you are born again. You come out of the womb the second time crying and screaming because you need to be filled. And he says it's by that that God uses, that God matures you and he grows you into the full stature of reflecting the image of Christ. That's the aim for you, Christian. That's the aim for me, that's the aim for a church, is that we would not just be infants any longer, but there would be a maturity to us, that God grows us, he matures us as we stick our face in here and say, feed me on a regular basis. We're coming back to it over and over and over again, and God grows us and stretches us and challenges us and changes us from the inside out because the word produces or it generates maturity in our lives. It generates maturity in our lives. 
So that just as an infant progresses into a child and a child into an adolescent, that's scary, right? And then an adolescent into an adult. So also the word produces maturity, generates maturity in our lives. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of this for myself, and I'm afraid of this for the American church, is that there are many people who sit in chairs and pews every Sunday, and the maturation process in their life has become short-circuited to some degree. And so people who may have been Christians for 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, but they've never moved out of spiritual infancy or childhood, or they never progressed beyond spiritual adolescence into adulthood, how do you know if that's you? How do you know if the word's not, it's not, there's something going on, that there's maturity not being generated? What are some markers that you can look at? What are some lights on the dashboard of your life that should be flashing to show you that you're still in spiritual infancy? You're still stuck. You're still a spiritual child, even though you may have the body of an adult, and even though you may have the, the longevity of an adult in your life as a Christian for many, many, many years. A couple of things I want to to throw out to you this morning. First of all, one of the things that you need to look for is the degree to which you are constantly insecure. Because spiritual adolescents or spiritual children or infants, they constantly wrestle with insecurity. Do you remember what it was like to go through adolescence and that change that took place from your childhood into adolescence? What, What All of a sudden, right, overnight it seemed like. Before, like, you got dudes... Like middle, elementary school boys and middle school boys, right? I just speak to it from my own experience. Like we never showered, maybe once a week, right? Just kind of knock off the dirt. <laughs> right, you didn't really take care of yourself. You didn't really worry about what you looked like before you went out the house. But all of a sudden, right, when you begin to shift, right, into that kind of adolescent stage, what happens? All of a sudden you become very concerned with what you look like and very overly concerned with what, so you're always primping, Right? I'm going to make sure the hair looks right. right ladies, you got to make sure the makeup looks right if you're wearing makeup. you got to make sure right, the style, the clothes, you want to pr- project the right image. Right? Because there's a certain insecurity. You want to be accepted. You want to be received. There's a certain insecurity in your heart. And listen, spiritual childhood or adolescence is very similar. One of the ways to know that you've never really moved out of spiritual childhood or spiritual adolescence is because you, you live with a constant insecurity about yourself. You're never able to really open up and be transparent and real with someone because you're constantly afraid of what that crack in your image is going to do. Will they receive me? Will they reject me? Will they give me the hand or shake my hand and receive me into fellowship? If they know really what goes on in my heart, if they know really what goes on in my mind, if they know what really happened in my past, would they be so quick to say, hey, we're glad you're here this morning? See, those in spiritual childhood or adolescence struggle with this constant insecurity, but the Word of God helps us mature out of it because then you read passages like the book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews, right? You sit down and you read it, all the way through, and you come across text in the book of Hebrews that speak of Jesus as being the lamb that was offered in your place and the priest who made the offering, and that through his single offering in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
So you read Hebrews 10, 14, and you look at that, and you meditate on it, and you reflect on it, and you memorize it, and you hide it in your heart, and all of a sudden, you find nourishment to move beyond your insecurity because you know that what Christ has done, what Christ has done is secured your perfection in the eyes of God. And that he receives you not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. And whenever you come to rest in that and understand that, then you can move towards others with a, a, a vibrant transparency. Because, you know, no matter how they receive me or respond to me, God has received me because of what Christ has done, not because of what I have done. It produces a maturity and helps you move beyond that insecurity. So another way you might know is if you constantly, secondly, if you constantly yield to fleshly selfishness with an unwillingness to sacrifice. You constantly give yourself over to fleshly selfishness with an unwillingness to sacrifice. Listen, I can remember as a kid being a pain in the rear. <laughs> My wife might say that I still am. Right? Because there is a sense in which you begin to, when you're trying to figure out who you are as a child or you move into that, those teenage years trying to figure out who you are, right? Ultimately, the spotlight gets turned very inward on ourselves, right? You ever talked to a child before? Right? You can talk to them for about five seconds about what's going on with you, and then they're like, hey, did you see my new shoes? Right? It's like immediately the spotlight comes back on them. And it's about them. And there's an there's a, there's a unwillingness or perhaps even sometimes an inability to think about others and think about someone outside of myself and to lay down my desires and to lay down my will and to lay down my convenience or my comforts. And listen, those who are stuck in spiritual childhood or adolescence are very much the same. Very much the same. Right? So their whole church experience is ultimately about them and what's convenient for them and what's comfortable for them. And as long as it doesn't cost me something, I'm happy to help in various ways. But as soon as it begins to cost, I check out. I check out. As soon as there's some discomfort associated with it, I kind of pull back. So Andy Mineo is a Christian rapper on his, um, I know that sounds a little oxymoronic for some of you, um, but he's a Christian hip-hop artist. And on his latest album in 2015, uh, the title track is called Uncomfortable. And it starts this way. He says, nobody ever told me you could die like this. Nobody ever told me you could die from bliss. From bliss. Nobody told me, nobody told me. He says it much more eloquently and kind of really <laughs> cool and hip than I can. All right? We never saw it coming. Live it up, live it up. Nobody ever told us we could die like this. Live it up, live it up. Nobody ever told us we never saw it coming. Live it up, live it up. Corrupted by the comfort we love. Corrupted by the comfort we love. And then in the very first verse, listen to what he says. He says, tell me how you plan on getting swole. He sounds a lot cooler, I told you. Tell me how you plan on getting swole if you don't ever get sore. If you don't ever get sore. Tell me how you plan on being built up if you're never stretched. 
Tell me how you ever plan on growing if it doesn't cost you something. We talked about that last week. Real love is not just sentiment. It actually cost us something as it did God. It cost him his son. How do you ever plan on being built up? Have you ever, how do you ever plan on getting stronger if you're never stretched, if you're never pushed beyond your limits, if you never have to sacrifice? Listen, if you sacrifice, sacrifice, okay? If you put self-denial on the altar, what you're also laying on the altar simultaneously is your maturity. It is your growth. If you sacrifice, sacrifice, you will stay in childhood and adolescence. And then you come across texts like this in the Bible. Like in Galatians chapter 5 where Paul says this to the church. He says, serve one another in love. Talking to a church that is divided over the practice of conscience to, to a large degree. And he says, serve one another in love. In other words, put aside your personal preferences and the things that are convenient and comfortable for you and serve one another in love. And then you read texts like Mark chapter 10 where Jesus himself says, listen, I didn't come so that I could put my feet up and have you give me a pedicure. That'd be a little weird for a man in Jesus' day. But I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and lay my life down. So one of the ways you know you're still in spiritual childhood or adolescence is if you'll only serve the degree to which it's comfortable for you. Third, one of the ways you know you're still in spiritual childhood or adolescence and you never quite matured into an adult is that you need to feel a certain way to be obedient. You need to feel a certain way to be obedient. Listen, I, I did student ministry for a very long time um, from the time that I was probably 19 in serving in internships and part-time capacities up to the time that I was um, in my late 20s. So for about 10 years, I served in various capacities as a student pastor. And one of the things that I saw uh, for those in, in kind of that 6th to 12th grade, that adolescent period um, in, in their lives was this. One of the things that I saw was that oftentimes, oftentimes, right, there was this, there was this inherent need they had to feel a certain way before they would take action that they knew to be true, right? And so what, what, what guided them was not necessarily what they op- when they opened the Bible and saw what it said and saw that it's tr- understood that it's true, believed that it's true, and they took steps to move in that direction, but they had to feel a certain way in order for it to happen. And so that's why you saw after camp or after Disciple Now or after a retreat, right, they come home with this big wave of energy, They'd come home and they'd be like on fire for the next two weeks. But then seven months later, there's just this lethargy. They come home repenting. I'm going to treat my parents so much better than what I do when I live. (laughs) And then like two months later, they're yelling and screaming doors again. Or screaming, screaming doors, slamming doors. That's the word that I was looking for, slamming doors again. Right? Because they, they don't feel it anymore. They don't feel it anymore. And listen, that's one of the marks of just kind of being stuck in adolescence. So you got to feel a certain way to be obedient as opposed to opening the Bible and seeing what it says is true and taking steps in that direction. 
So when you come across texts like Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, where Paul is speaking about what lies ahead of, for him, and he says this, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit, listen to this, testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. In other words, I'm going to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and beaten. That's what I know. I don't know what's going to happen there, but it's not going to be good. For me, verse 24 of Acts 20, but I know I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if I only may, find, may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Listen, I don't think that Paul sat there in a prayer circle singing Kumbaya the fourth night of camp, right, with this great feeling about going to Jerusalem to be beaten and imprisoned and ultimately to die. But it's what God had commanded him to do. Constrained, he says, by the Holy Spirit, he went. I don't think he had a whole lot of warm fuzzies about that. Are you overly reliant on feelings? It's not that truth doesn't produce emotion, but when you're dependent upon the emotion to obey the truth, then you're stuck. Fourth, you expect to feel connected without being invested. You expect to feel connected without being invested. Listen, I hear, I hear, I heard as, as, a, as a student pastor for a long time as well about, you know, all the struggles that they had with really feeling like they were connected with a group of people. I don't have people here that I can connect with. But a part of the issue was they weren't pushing in to be invested in the lives of other people. Right? And if you're stuck in spiritual childhood or adolescence, you may feel the same way. Listen, I don't feel like I can connect at this church or at that church or at the other church. But a part of it is that you're not pushing yourself in to be invested in what's going on there. And then you read texts all over the New Testament. I don't have one in particular, right? But you read texts all over the New Testament that say, love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, admonish one another. What does that require? It requires relationships. It requires being connected to people. It requires being invested in their lives. And if you go, well, I just, I, I just couldn't connect there. Did you ever try and invest there? Did you ever want another someone? One of the markers of spiritual childhood or adolescence is that you want to feel connected without being really all that invested. And then finally, finally, one of the, another marker is that may, you may feel like you need to be entertained constantly by special effects. <laughs> I remember as a kid, okay, whenever it came time to go watch a movie or a show came on television, right, um, what I wanted to see is what? Lots of action, really cool stuff happening on the screen, right? All, ex- all kind of excitement, like there's something going on over here, all of a sudden, oh, there's something going on over here, oh, no, no, there's more going on over here, right? There are all kinds of crazy stuff going on, right? Stuff blowing up all over the place. I still kind of like watching stuff blowing up. But, but you know, there's, there's that, that's what you kind of felt entertained by, right? And as soon as the story slowed down for a little bit of character development, a little bit of plot development... Right? And it wasn't like a ringmaster any longer kind of running the show and all these kind of special effects taking place all around. Right? What happens with kids? They kind of check out, don't they? They kind of check out. 
You see, one of the markers of spiritual childhood or adolescence is that they feel like they've got to have a ringmaster every Sunday and every service has got to be filled with fireworks. And then it's not enough for somebody to open the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord, let me teach you what it has to say. I've got to go someplace where I can be entertained. Listen, I'm not here this morning to scold you. Okay, here's, but, but here's what you need to do. You need to go, man, it's, it's, not that, it's, it's not bad, necessarily bad if you find yourself in this spiritual infancy or childhood or adolescence, but the point is recognizing that's where you are. That's where you are. But it's the word of God that will mature you through it. Because listen, your heart will never naturally say to you, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. It will never naturally say that to you, but the Bible does. Your heart will never naturally say to you, listen to the guy who just opens the Bible and teaches without special effects. Your heart will never naturally say to you that the people who may have the greatest influence in the kingdom are not the cool dudes with skinny jeans and black rim glasses on stage, but the 80-year-old ladies who are in their prayer closet for four hours a day on their knees before God. Your heart will never naturally say that to you, but the Word does. And it will help mature you and grow you. I took a lot of time on that point. So I'm going to scratch one of these, and we're going to jump to the end. Here we go. Here's what, you, here's, here's what we need to understand this morning, Okay. Listen, you may find yourself to be in spiritual adolescence, and God wants to grow you up into the full stature of the image of Christ. But you go, what if, what if my appetite is diminished, or what if my appetite is kind of dull, and I've just kind of filled myself up on all these snack foods, right? Entertainment, social media, all these other things, and, and I don't necessarily fill up on something that's going to be filling and nourishing. Some of you may not read the Bible because you might find it discouraging, right? Because you go, I... I don't get that same stuff that those people do when oftentimes what you don't recognize is that those people, those people may have been Christians for 25 years. Those people may have multiple degrees in, in theology and, and, and hermeneutics, how to understand the Bible and interpret the Bible and, and homiletics, how to present it to other I don't get the same kind of stuff. But listen, I had a seminary professor tell me one time in school, he said, listen, if you were reading a book on business practice, Right? If you're a small business owner, reading a book on business practice, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't quite get that principle the author's laying down right there. He's laying out right there. And I, I, I wish that I could sit down and talk with him about what he means by that and how it applies in my particular context. You might feel that way. If you're reading a book, the author may call him up. That'd be great. I don't have access to him. Well, listen, if, you're one, if, you, if, if that's you and you get discouraged because you open the Bible and you go, I, I, I don't see those kinds of things, I want you to know that the author, you have access to him 24-7, 365. And you can say, I don't get it. Help me get it. Help me understand it. So don't be discouraged because you don't get it. But what I hope that would do is force you to your knees in prayer to say, God, help me. Help me. 
And some of you this morning, you may say, look, I don't have that appetite at all. Where's it going to come from? Listen, let me tell you where it's going to come from. Whether, you, whether you're still dead or whether you're just dull or your appetite's been diminished, it comes from the same place. It comes from the same place, and it comes from tasting the goodness of God in the gospel. From tasting the goodness of God in the gospel. Listen, if you like the way something tastes, don't you usually come back for more? That's my problem. I don't know about yours. When it comes to the buffet and Thanksgiving just around the corner, when I like something the way it tastes, I usually come back for more. And not just once. I just want to go ahead and confess this morning. Like three, four sometimes. Like just keep putting that on the plate. I know I'm going to be miserable later, but just keep putting it on the plate. When you like the way something tastes, you usually come back for more. And that's what Peter says in the text in verse 3. He says that this appetite is absolutely dependent upon us tasting that God is good. Tasting that he's good. Have you tasted that he's good? See, apart from the gospel, you will not taste that God is good. Because it's only in the gospel where God becomes a friend and a father. And not just a judge of sinners. But it's in the good news of Jesus Christ living in your place and dying in your place through the gospel of God, through the word that was preached to you back in verse chapter 1, verse 25. Peter says, the way, the place that you taste the goodness of God in all of its fullness is when you look at the cross. And you go, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Sin was strong. Jesus is stronger. When you look at the cross and you see the goodness of God in the gospel, then there's something, there's something that goes, I want more of that. I want more of that. And so you open the Bible and you put your face in there. Listen, every other world religion, and particularly traditional uh, religious upbringing, even in churches across America, they ultimately say this. If it's void of the gospel at all, it ultimately says this. It says, I, I do so God will. That's what every other world religion says. And that's what every church void of the gospel says. I do so God will. I do these things so God will accept me and receive me. But the gospel says, God did so I will. God did, so I will. Not I do, so God will, but God did, so I will. God has already received me because of what Christ has done. And through faith in him, I'm declared perfect in his eyes because Jesus' perfect record is now credited to me and my sinful record was credited to Jesus on the cross and he took my punishment in my place. God did, so I will. And when you look at the gospel, it awakens this appetite within you for more of what you've tasted to be good. And when you read the Bible, then you begin to read it through those lenses. Listen, I'm going to preach a whole sermon on this in January after the first year, but I'll give you a little trailer, okay? A little trailer as we close this morning. So when you read the Bible... You shouldn't just be reading the Bible to say, okay, now how can I be like Abraham? Or how can I be like Joseph? Or how can I be like David? See, most of us, when we open the Bible, that's what we're looking for. How can I be like these people? But before you ask, your, before you ask yourself, how can I be like Abraham? Or how can I be like Joseph? Or how can I be like David? What you need to do, 
Right? Because then you'll begin to see the gospel all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the A to Z of Christianity, not just the ABCs. And so what you'll begin to see is it's all over the pages of the Bible. And in fact, the Old Testament, at times, it becomes so much clearer than even in the New. Take, for instance, the story of David and Goliath. Here you've got this, in the eyes of the world, you've got this small, scrawny little dude. He may be a little gangly, got size 12 feet, but he's 4'2", right? Scrawny little dude who goes out to face this massive giant that no one could defeat. No one could defeat him. No, none of the strongest men in Israel's army. Listen, those dudes have, who have been at the gym all day, every day, the strongest dudes in Israel's army, they're like, I'm not going up against that. There's no way. And here comes David, so unsuspecting. And David says, I'll take him on. I'll take him on. And so what does he do? He goes pick up five smooth stones and a little sling, and he walks out. And he says, you've been mocking. You've been mocking the God of our people. And Goliath just laughs. This, as my kid's Bible says, this terrible laugh. <laughs> From deep within his gut, and David takes the sling, swirls it around, lets it go. One stone, one stone between the eyes of this massive giant falls into the ground, takes his sword, cuts off his head. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> but I want you to think about something. Listen, most of us look at that and go, well, I've got to learn to be like David because then I can defeat the giants in my life. Listen, you will never be like David unless you see the only giant that stands to ultimately condemn and crush you has already been defeated. It's already been defeated. And just like David, who stood in the place for his people and his victory was credited to them even though they, didn't, they never lifted a finger to win the battle. His victory is credited to them. And they live in freedom because of it. Does that sound familiar? It took place several thousand years after that, or several hundred years after that at the cross as well. See, what you've got to begin to learn to see is that the gospel is not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z, and it's everywhere throughout the scriptures. So you see David's victories imputed to his people. They never lifted a finger to win against that giant. And the only giant that could ever ultimately crush or condemn you has been defeated by one whose victory is imputed to you as well. Only then we'd be able to face the giants of fear and anxiety and worry, stress, loss of job, failure of a relationship. Only then. Have you tasted that he is good? If you have, you will be hungry. 